Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Lynn Hughes, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to uh, have you here. I think we connected, sort of. I remember you, you don't remember me. You came to a really large bank where we were doing some fun things, trying to raise money for Comfort Zone Camp. Uh, and I, I remember that event finally because we, we raised money for a very good cause. Um, and then we reconnected recently through my buddy, uh, Rob Dahl, who I think you know through softball. Your daughter and his daughter played softball. That's right. Yeah. So glad you're here. You're, you're in Paul's basement studios. <laughs> it's pretty exciting. It's probably the biggest, most high-profile uh, thing you've ever done in your life. That's sarcasm. For those that don't know Lynn, Lynn is uh, fairly well-known. Uh, and, and you're national, essentially, now, right? Yes. Yeah, but you, you didn't start as this national uh, power doing great things for other people selflessly. So talk to us about where you grew up and, and uh, what it was like growing up. Yeah, I grew up in Michigan. I drink pop and play euchre. People from the Midwest will know what I'm talking about. What's euchre? I'm familiar with pop. Euchre, euchre is a card game that you don't realize that only people in the Midwest know what it is. It's a cross between hearts and spades. Okay. And you play with a partner. You play with four people. Okay. In, in Michigan, I went to Michigan State, and we would have euchre tournaments. And wow. It was a big deal. Were they like marathons? Uh, no. You, you. I mean, there was a certain number of points and like a, a like round robin and... So, okay, but it was enjoyable. It was very enjoyable. I enjoyed playing hearts and spades in college. I know that. So what was it like being like a, an eight, nine, ten-year-old growing up in Michigan? I, you know, I grew up in what I thought was a typical family. I was the only girl. I have three brothers. I'm number three of four. Uh, lived in a suburb, walking distance to school, walking distance to the swim club, and uh was having a pretty normal life and then when I was nine years old my mom died and it was fluky weird Uh, she was playing tennis my parents played a lot of tennis and we were watching my brothers and I were at the tennis courts watching them play basically wreaking havoc in the background of the tennis courts. not not really paying attention not paying attention and we looked up to see my mom hobbling off the tennis court and my dad was assisting her and it turns out she had pulled a muscle in her leg and my dad wanted her to go to the emergency room and she was poo-pooing it, I'm fine, you're making a big deal about this. So we went home and called the family doctor who was a friend and he gave her the advice you'd expect, which is ice it, elevate it, stay yeah. off of it for Th- a few things days. Things that everybody's done a bunch of times, yeah. And so she she did, She I remember her icing it and elevating it and then three days later, my dad was getting up early to play tennis and my bedroom was right next to theirs and I heard him repeatedly calling my mom's name. And I finally got out of bed and I said, Dad, what's wrong? And he said, turn the light on. And it was like, like a camera flash going off in my eyes. And as I stood there, you know, covering my eyes, he said, I think your mother's dead. Oh my gosh. And that was horrible. She died in her sleep. From the, She ended up getting a blood clot um, from the muscle pull. And super rare. Super rare. And it was 1974. It was right at the beginning of women going on birth control pills and my mom was on the birth control pill and the estrogen levels were a lot higher. Mm. And she was a social smoker, which was you know, very uh, normal back then, very my, common. My parents smoked back in the, those days, yeah. So those two things contributed to the blood clot. So in today's world, it wouldn't have happened, but in my world, it did. And, and never anticipated that that would have happened back in 74. It, it was a huge shock. It just kind of sent ripples through their friends and our family and my dad, uh, was was broken. He was he felt really really guilty that he thought if he had made her go to the emergency room that night, that she wouldn't have died. But of course they wouldn't have been able to catch a blood no. clot in thirty minutes of a muscle pull. But you know grief isn't always rational, and so from that point on, my dad my dad was different. Not only had we lost my mom, we really lost my dad too. Yeah. Uh, he started sleeping on the couch every night to avoid the bed that mm. my mom had died in. Started drinking a lot and not coming home, but he had four kids. He had kids from, he had a 14 year old son, 10 year old son, I was nine, and my little brother was was six. Mm. So he um, had his parents come in from Arizona, Sun City, Arizona, and they were crazy, and he was not close to them. Oh wow. But he had four kids, and he was so desperate, and he was, he was not able, some people could step up and do both roles after a death, my dad was not able to do that. Um, he just literally knew how to do the breadwinner and was barely hanging on. Yeah. 
Uh, so, you know, from that point on, like I said, it was a lot of chaos of who was in charge and they would hire live-in housekeepers and then they would go back to Arizona and then my dad would call them and say, this one's not working out. So he'd fly them back and have them fire <laughs> the person. And so we went through four housekeepers in the course of a year. Mm. So it, was, it wasn't even, there wasn't really time to even miss my mom. It was who's in charge. And they, my grandparents, again, they were crazy. And they wanted to get back to Sun City to the bocce ball and, you know. The, when you say they're crazy. They, uh, they were just, my, gra- my, gra- my grandma was a raging alcoholic. And my grandpa never drank, swore, or smoked. So they were the North and South Pole. Yeah, what an odd couple. I mean, very odd. She always said that he kept hanging around and she couldn't get rid of him, so she married him. <laughs> and so they, she was funny, but you just never knew what she was going to do because she was wide open. She'd, she'd be in the mall and she'd be like breaking a little um, bottle out of whiskey, and, you know, sit in a little brown paper bag. Oh. And, I mean, you just never knew what she was going to do. And she wasn't like, oh, my poor son lost his wife and these poor children lost their mom. And they were like, you, you got the first lady that they hired was somebody who just left um, the convent, didn't know how to drive, didn't know how to cook. And seems one, like a bad hire. Oh, it was a bad hire. It was just again, you got a pulse. You want to take care of my <laughs> our grandkids? You're recently priced, and uh, yeah, you can, you can walk yeah we're on our way to the airport just drop your stuff off uh so one night my my dad was out drinking and my brother uh, we were outside playing and my brother fell and hit his head and needed stitches and and it wasn't a ton of but just you know stitches and she couldn't drive my dad's not home a neighbor had to take my my brother to the emergency room Mm. so she got fired the next day and then there was a few more in between and then the fourth one was 22 had had two different children by two different men her own children were taken away from her by the state because they were living in a car. But my grandparents hired her to take care of their precious grandchildren so they could hightail it back to Sun City. And my dad... They, are, they, they literally didn't care who they, they hired. I mean, anybody who had a pulse... I'm just, I mean, it's, it's incre- it, was, it was like a revolving door at the time. But as an adult now who is a mother and has kids, I mean, you're like, what? Seems insane. It seems insane. And my dad... Again, was broken, drinking, and sleeping on the couch because he wanted to avoid the bed. My mom died and was just turned everything over to his parents, who he was never close to, and they're making crazy decisions. And, br- he, and he's letting them. And did uh, that all that bring you, you and your brothers closer, or was it just so weird that it really didn't have that effect? No, it was, I mean, it, it was weird. Sometimes after a death, people do get closer, and sometimes they don't. In our family, everybody kind of went to their own corner mm. um, of the house, their bedroom, wherever, and just survived. And again, it was like, who's in charge? And my dad, you know, is not not the same. Um, and then he started dating right away, which added another layer to the chaos. Mm. And I think after all these housekeepers coming and going in the course of the year and his parents, um, he decided to get remarried. So, you know, he thought if he got a woman in the house, that would bring stability. And when you're drinking hard and you're grieving hard, that sets the stage for... And not just any woman will do. Right, exactly. You attract what you are, or water seeks his level. Right. So he met my stepmother. My mom died in January of 74. He met her January of 75 and married her three months later. Oh, my goodness. And years later, I didn't know this, but years later I found out that he broke down on their honeymoon and said he didn't love her, never should have married her, and that he still was in love with my my mother. Of course he was. But then, yeah, exactly, of course he is. But then, you know, he's married, and he's told us to buy into it, to call her mom, and um, they had a very rocky marriage, and they were married a little over a year, and at one point he comes home and announces he's moving out, and they're divorcing, but he leaves us with her. Again, as a parent... How, how old were you? Uh, so now I'm 10. Maybe I'm 11. I'm about. I'm probably a little over 11. So it's maybe a year and a half later. Your brother's 15, 16, the oldest? Mm-hmm. And so then they go. he starts telling... And I remember standing up to him and t- saying, you're, you're breaking the family apart. And like, you know, tell, basically, I looked at him, I told him he was an asshole. You weren't wrong. And so... Um, and he just kind of shook his head and like walked by and like with his bag and walked out the door. Then a month later, he comes back, he moves back in, starts going to AA, starts losing weight, and then within weeks has a massive heart attack and dies. Mm. And it was the day before I started junior high. So your parents died within two years of each other? It was two years and nine months, yep, two and a half. So I was Mm. almost 10 and then I was 12, like 12 and a half when my dad died. And you, so how did that affect you? So after your, your dad had passed away and a few months have passed, what was your life like at that point? 
it was, I mean, it was like a bad dream that you couldn't wake up from. And, and I didn't know anybody who lost one parent, let alone two parents. And I was well aware that the people who wanted me on this earth were gone. So the people who know your name and know your friends and ask you how your day was and, and lean in. And they care unconditionally know. about you. Yeah, yeah and they, they were gone. And my stepmother uh, married my dad because she thought he was well off and she thought she was going to lead this lifestyle. And she didn't want to raise us. My dad didn't change anything in his, uh, in, his will, in his will and his life insurance and stuff other than guardianship to her. So the whole time we lived with her, she said that my dad wronged her and that they were going to you know, change and make wills where she would have gotten 50% of everything. And so what she did was sue the estate over and over again the whole time that I lived with her. And she always threatened if she didn't get more money, we were going to have to live with relatives. So it was kind of like, how good can I be and not draw attention or noise to myself? Or um, So it wasn't a comfortable place. If there was not that unconditional love. Anxiety it was, everywhere. It was anxious. And um, the only thing that stayed the same was that we went to the same school and still had the same friends. What about uh, your friend's parents? Did they step in? So some did. And I, I was, again, aware that people would, would come into my life for a season and I was always really grateful because I was really aware that they didn't have to show me these extra kindnesses or interest. So sometimes it was a, a, a teacher. Sometimes it was a school counselor. Sometimes it was a, a, my best friend's mom. So it was it was different people for different seasons. But continuity was tough. Continuity, yeah, it was definitely tough. Yeah, and so are you tight with your brothers these days? So my older brother moved out of the house shortly after my dad died. Dropped out of high school, moved to Colorado. I haven't seen him probably 25, 30 years. Yeah, it was devastating for him, and he just wanted to get away, it sounds like. And then um, my brother, that's a year older than I am, he's in Michigan. Um, we were close till we went through life together. We graduated from college, same day, same time, same major, so we had that same point of reference. Uh, and the, But then I moved down to Virginia, and then my little brother, I was kind of his mother figure growing up, and... Not that I was extra nurturing, but I'd be aware because my stepmother was never home and we didn't have family dinners and stuff. So I'd be like, Danny, how long have you been at these people's house? Like, I think you're probably <laughs> overstaying. You're welcome. Like, you should come home or, you know, and so he would come to me like, can I go here? Can I go there? Or, um, so it wasn't a, a role that, I, you know, I, I stepped you, in. You were 12 and he was nine. Correct. Yeah. So then um, I was close to my one brother. But then when I uh, moved down to Virginia after I graduated from college, so Danny moved down here shortly afterwards so he and he's still down in virginia sorry danny is the youngest the youngest brother yeah. i used to say if i stopped walking danny would like bump into my back <laughs> so he he was like my shadow for a long time but do you still see him pretty yes i'm pretty close to, I'm, I'm closer to him i mean just because we've lived in the same area and as adults we're closer yeah you are uh you strike me as a completely normal person uh i i don't know how i would have turned out if i had gone through what you went through well, and I think that that both is a great question because when people have adversity, and I'm sure you've been touched by adversity, but whether you've been touched by it as an adult or as a child, you want you struggle with the why, and to make some sense of it and to to move forward and move through it, you've got to come up with some answers for the why. So, as a nine year old girl who lost her mom and a twelve year old girl who lost her dad, you know, I truly believe that God thought I was special and I was supposed to use my life in some way to make a difference had no idea what that meant, but it gave me this purpose to, to keep going. It gave you strength. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I don't know when a, a young girl's brain fully forms, but I, because I have a 19-year-old son, I know his brain is not fully formed yet. It's usually in the mid-20s. I think girls tend to, uh, by their late teens, their brains are fully formed. But your brain wasn't fully formed when you went through that trauma. I, but I, it feels like you've reconciled and, and you, you've been in a really good place for a long time now. Well, I eventually, I, so I, I lived with my stepmother till I was at uh, end of my junior year in high school, asked to go live with relatives when she threatened to break up the family if she didn't get more money one too many times. And uh, I lived with an aunt and uncle. I moved 30 minutes away. Who moves at the end of their junior year, going just, into their soon, senior just you, year? Just you? Or? Just me. Yeah. Because that's how stressful it was. And I uh, had two sides of the family, the Emily Post proper side, and then I had the like a cool aunt, the fun relatives that you could swear in front of. So at 16, 
17, I, I picked that side of the family. Sure, I would have picked that side, yeah. And I got there, and my aunt was great, and my cousins were great. They were older, they were out of the house, but my uncle, he wasn't so great, but I thought, how bad can Uncle Frank be? If he got to know me, he would love me. I'm lovable. But I get there, and for the first two weeks, he completely ignores me. When I walk into a room, so strange. he walks out of a room. And so after two weeks of that, and it starts dawning on me, like, uh-oh, like, I have asked to live here. I've moved away from all of my friends and the one the one constant in my life. And um, I might have put myself in another bad situation. And then his first words to me were, I'll never love you as a father, nor an uncle, nor should you expect me to, walks away. Why would anybody say that to a teenage and that's the thing. And that was probably one of the hardest, as bad as my stepmother was, the fact that he was so intentionally cruel to a child and not even giving her a chance. So that was really, I just endured living there. I lived in like my bedroom, never interacted with them. He's a good Catholic. You'll be happy to know he doesn't eat meat on Fridays. And uh, he would shake my hand at the Peace Be With You every Sunday at Mass and then not talk to me until the next Peace Be With You. So it was crazy. You're, you're being sarcastic when yes. you say good Catholic. Yes, yes. Uh, and but I, I I never came back. I went to college and I never came back. You know, I just vowed to never spend the night in somebody's house who was who tolerated me living there because I got a check from my dad's estate um, and social security per check. You know, so that's the only reason he even remotely tolerated uh, me being there. So I went to college and, and never came back. And like you know, but I I knew my parents would want me to be okay. I knew that they'd want me. To graduate from college but also um, you know I still felt like I was supposed to use my life in some way to make a difference and have their loss make some sense of course I'm at Michigan State completely on my own I don't answer to anybody it was a very strange feeling to know like if you went off a cliff nobody would know um, so you know my safety antenna and taking care of me was very heightened right. I wasn't wild I wasn't crazy if people were doing crazy stuff at a party I would like walk up back out the door and um, you didn't know what major was, use your life to make a difference. But, but I knew I had to take care of myself and I, I couldn't go back to Uncle Frank's or my stepmother's house. So I got a, a degree in communications because you didn't have let's, to. Let's, can we back sure. up? Sure. So how did you motivate, how were you motivated to go to college in the first place? I think it was just always an expectation that I would go to college. My, my parents went to college. Pretty much everybody in my family went to Michigan State. My aunts and uncles, my cousins. So it's just what you did. So it was just kind of like what you did. And so I knew my parents would want that. Um, it also, you know, I was well aware it was the path to, to most likely being able to take care of myself, that you need that piece of paper for admission. To So it was logical and people you knew in your family that you respected had followed a similar path. Correct. So I'm sorry, I interrupted. You said you majored in communication. Yeah, I mean, basically, because I didn't, and it was the easiest. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Again, using your life to make a difference was not an option. So I, I picked communications because it was uh, probably the easiest path to graduation. I wasn't great in math, and you didn't have to take any math classes, so that was awesome. Um, I majored in history for very similar reasons. You know. So, yeah, it's <laughs> My, my son was at Tech, and he was like, how come they got rid of that? Like, is there any college I could go to that gets rid of that math crime? I'm like, I'm sorry. They've long got rid of that. <laughs> yeah, Tech is a pretty math-intensive school, depending on your major. What's your son majoring in, by the way? He was uh, multimedia journalism, uh, so he just which is in communication. So. Yeah, we'll talk about him in a little bit and the rest of your family. Uh, so you, you've majored in communications. You've graduated. What, what, what was your next move? Well... I went to, to backtrack a little bit after my parents died. I went to summer camp for a few weeks in the summer, and I loved it. And it was a magical bubble where time stood still. Great. Yeah, I mean, nothing exists outside of camp. You know, you turbo bond with people in that and camp you can relax. bubble. And you relax. And for me, I got to step out of being a grieving kid and get back to being a kid again. There were no headlines in the news, there was no grief or loss. I mean, you're just kind of in the bubble with those other campers. And I loved it, and I love my camp counselors. And I wrote to them. I even went and visited them for a weekend. Oh, wow. So the one thing I knew I wanted to do before I graduated was to be a cool camp counselor like I had. So beyond that, I had no idea. But So I went to Michigan State Summer Job Fair, uh, and I was going into my senior year in college. And they had camps from all around the country. And I thought, well, that would be interesting. I'll get out of state. And this guy who held the door for me walking in, he was like, just making small talk with me. And he said, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to be a camp counselor. He's like, oh, you should stop by the table and meet, you know, the head, my camp director. He's like, I went to this summer camp. 
um, in the Poconos for three years. And he's like, I really liked it. So I went, you know, anybody, if you have a pulse, pretty much again, they'll, they'll hire you to work these camps. Right. And all of the things remained equal. I never saw this guy again, but I figured he'd been there for three years. How bad could it be? And, and uh, it was in the Poconos. It was the only co-ed one. And uh, I met my husband, Kelly. He was from Virginia. He went to, he's from Richmond and then from. Uh, it's not a move Tech. most Richmonders make going to a camp in the Poconos. He, somebody in his, on his floor that he met at Tech okay. uh, had been and talked him into going. And uh, so it was his second year was my first year. But um, I joke, it sounds like a bad TV movie that we were camp counselors in the Poconos. <laughs> that but, sounds like a sitcom. <laughs> yeah, but it was a true story. So we dated long distance my senior year. And then I hopped onto his life and moved down to to Virginia. Was it hard doing the long distance thing? Because you'd only dated, what, two or three months yeah, before Yeah, and that. I think sometimes long, long distance relationships, the idea of the relationship, you know, can keep it going. Right. Uh, so, and then we went back to camp again after we graduated, and then I moved, moved down here. That probably helped. Yeah, so. That probably sealed the notion of you coming down to Virginia. What did you know about Virginia before you came here? Uh, I mean, I had, after, that year that we were dating, I'd been down here probably five or six times. So um, when I first moved down here, I was around Kelly as my husband. I was around his uncle, and so what I knew about it, I was knew, I knew the capital of the Confederacy was somewhere around here, and I knew the Mason Dixon line was like somewhere around here. So in making small talk with his uncle, I was like, so where you know where is the capital of the Confederacy? Where is the Mason Dixon line? He sat down, tears streaming down his face. He was laughing so hard, slapped his knee. He's like, Lynn, I need to tell you something, and you can't ever forget it. He was like, Richmond is the capital of the Confederacy. <laughs> and he was like, there's a lot of people who take it very seriously down. He said, personally, I think it's adorable. You have no idea. He's like, well, I'm from Michigan. We make cars. We don't care about yeah. the Civil War. Right. So Michigan didn't have a big part in the Civil War. No. Sure. Yeah, most people from Richmond, uh, well, I shouldn't say most, but some people take it very seriously. Uh, it's part of our history. We should learn a uh, about our mistakes from that history, but right. let's not get too excited about that because it was a four-year period. There are plenty of other four-year periods we can talk about too. Yes, but you are we are technically in the capital of the Confederacy, but that was a notion that stopped uh, back in 1865. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the Mason-Dixon line is actually strangely n not really near here. It's uh, actually in Maryland, I think, which is, a, but r most people think it goes through Richmond, I think. I think he maybe said north of here. It was about as specific as he got. Yeah, I don't know exactly where it is, but I know it's closer to Maryland than uh, most people assume it is. All right, so you you came to Virginia. You're dating. Yes, I. Uh, so I worked in retail all through college. I worked at a store called The Limited. Which, I'm familiar. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and so uh, and I had again didn't know what I wanted to do, but it gave me a path to move here. And so I went into management. I was a co-manager at The Limited, at Regency Mall. It was a big deal back in the day. It was. It was happening. <laughs> and uh, got good discounts on clothes. And that was the mall back then, right? Oh, and they had just finished the renovation and put the food court in the, right. the week that I started. So that, that was like the center of the universe back then, actually. So I did that, gosh, for a couple years. And then um, get no pay and you sell your soul in retail. You really got to like... It's hard. Weekends and holidays, not you know, just spending them at the mall. Right. So I ended up interviewing for some jobs, and I got a job working for another company that doesn't exist anymore, but MCI, mm. selling long distance, long distance to commercial businesses. And so I got sales training and made some decent money. You were at a call center making phone calls? Well, it was making appointments and going out. Oh, okay. And, and so in person. So it was cold calling, but then... Um, it was right after the divestiture of AT&T mm. and when there was competition besides yep. AT&T. So anyways, it was, it, was, it was fun. It was it was hard, but it was fun. And there was a bunch of young kids who worked there. So it was kind of a fraternity of, of kids who had just graduated from college yeah, oh, and yeah. making decent money. So I did that for a few years. And then um, somebody I sold long distance to um, offered me a job working for an association and convention management company. Mm. So they managed a bunch of nonprofits and would answer the phone. You know, we'd have their own phone line. We'd have their own uh, meeting planner, their own marketing person, their own um, executive director. So I was the executive director to about four medical organizations. Mm. Knew nothing about any of the medical piece, but I learned how to do board of directors and how to do project plans and how to 
put out their journals or their newsletters and how to organize their annual conventions and get exhibitors and a whole variety of stuff. So, so very different from what you had been doing, but it sounds like you had to hustle and if you hustled and you were smart about it, you could make it work. And then, so in my whole career path, you'll, you'll see each job that I had gave me the perfect skill set to ultimately do what I end up doing. So I, I, I worked, um, I did the association convention management for about four years and um, moved to Chicago for a little while, continued to do, um, I, the longer story, I, Kelly and I broke up for a while, so I moved to Chicago and was doing the same thing, running associations up there and then um, moved back down, was still doing that and you, well, moved, you moved back down to Virginia. Be, I went to, up to Chicago and then back. But because you were going to get back together. Right. Yeah, got it. Just to make the, Kelly's like, do you want volume one, two, or three <laughs> of, of our life story? Volume, we, 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 we won't explore the yeah, breakup. Yeah, too much time. <laughs> um, but while I was in, in Chicago, uh, there was a, uh, I saw one morning I was watching the Today Show and I saw a book come out and I ca- saw the author on there and she was my age. And it was called Motherless Daughters. Mm. And it was written for women and girls who lost their mom at a young age. And to me, I didn't know there was any difference from losing your mom to your dad. To me, it was just a huge hole I had inside of me. Right. And so I saw this, and I'm running nonprofits at the time. And um, and again, she's my age, and I still had, had that pressure of feeling like I'm supposed to use my life in some way to make a difference. So I read that book. It really spoke to me. It sold over 600,000 copies. It was on the best New York Times bestsellers list. So then rolling in, and that was 1994, my New Year's resolution for uh, January 95 was to write her a letter and tell her if this book has struck such a chord with women and girls, there ought to be a national nonprofit for it. And so I told her my loss history, but I also told her my professional nonprofit history. And I just looked up her her publisher on the jacket, the book jacket, and sent it off. And it was probably the first really crazy out-of-the-box thing I ever did. And two months later, she called me and she said she and four close friends of hers that she knew who were motherless women were starting a nonprofit and would I help them? And I remember- That's awesome, right? I remember being forever, like knowing that that moment was just a, a hallmark moment in my life that I was gonna be forever different. That, and I remember not knowing whether to cry, cheer, or wet my pants. Like I was just like, for, all, like all, oh! All, all of the above, I think, yes. would be appropriate, yeah. And so I, I helped them and I'm still in Chicago, but I, I I helped them create chapters around the country and um, did some strategic planning for them. And uh, then I moved back, when I moved back to Virginia, the first thing I did was uh, they were starting to do National Motherless Daughters Days the day before Mother's Day. So I helped them plan those around the country and I did one in Richmond. And I thought, well, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm running nonprofits. Maybe this is how I'm gonna make sense of, of my parents' loss. And so Kelly, I'm putting on this luncheon, and I had like 45 women come, and the Times Dispatch did an article on mm-hmm. it, and and I had women from 70 years old, and I had a girl as young as 14. And <clears throat> the 14-year-old obviously had a very recent loss, but the 70-year-old had lost her mom when she was 10. Mm-hmm. And prior to this event, never met or spoke to anybody who lost her mom. Wow. So for 60 years, she was carrying that around, sitting right on her shoulder, hadn't gone anywhere. She still had that need 60 years later to connect and realize she wasn't alone. I bet, yeah. So Kelly, meanwhile, is in the, in the periphery doing box lunches and you know helping me set up. And, and he's overhearing this because we had a speaker and it, got, and it ended up turning into kind of like a big room support session, support group. So he's hearing about her and her name was Barbara. And he was like, that's crazy that you know she never, that's crazy. But then simultaneously, he would say to me from time to time, what are we gonna be when we grow up? And is this as good as it gets? And can we ever figure out a way to go back to camp? And, mm. I, and I, we'd have this nostalgic, like, wouldn't it be great to be adults and go back to camp? And then I'd be poo-pooing it and be like, oh, it's never going to happen. <laughs> so right after that luncheon, he said, what are we going to be when we grow up? Is this as good as it gets? Can we ever go back to camp? And this time I said, yes, we need to make a camp for grieving kids. We need to get that girl when she's 14 and fresh to go and not have her be like Barbara and wait 60 years to realize she's not okay and acquire all that extra baggage that Barbara must have acquired by not being able to talk about her loss. So that was how the dream of uh, Comfort Zone Camp was started. We were called Camp Comfort then. And have you ever heard if you have a dream, you're supposed to tell somebody because they hold you accountable? Ah, oh, that's a good that's a good uh, rule there. So other than Kelly, I told two people. At this point, so I had had um, worked in retail, I'd worked in sales, I'd worked in nonprofit. At this point, I'm working at a hospice. 
and I'm a paid volunteer coordinator and I'm getting formal grief training and more and volunteer management. And, um, but so I told my boss at hospice about it and I told this therapist friend who I sucked into doing motherless daughters with me. So every now and then those two people would say, what are you doing about that bereavement camp? I'd be like, nothing, not a darn thing. I'm kind of sorry I told you. And then about two years have gone by and, and I'm like, yeah, go ahead, please. And, and you did hospice because you that was preparing you to do what you ultimately did, or you were going to do that anyway? Um, I ended up, the, the nonprofit management, I ended up connecting with somebody who was working at the hospital. I guess it just kind of appealed to me, the whole grief angle of it. Um, and I think that maybe the... the, the the, what I was doing when I came back from Chicago too, I was kind of running the nonprofit on the side out of my house. So I think I was looking for something more, more stable, but I came across that. And then one of the, the therapists who helped me with motherless daughters one day, she called me up and she's like, what are you doing about that bereavement camp? I know this guy and he's talking about doing one. Well, I knew that guy and he worked for a a rival hospice. Yes, even in hospice, there are competitive. I didn't didn't know there were rivalries. It sounds like an oxymoron, (laughs) but But, uh, and he was kind of like a shady used car salesman kind of person. I was like, he will not steal my dream. I do not like him. And out of my competitive spirit in two weeks, I had a board of directors. You needed that guy. I, I, yeah, he was, he was, uh, it pushed me into high gear. I had a camp name, a board of directors and a board meeting within two weeks of thinking that this guy was going to start a bereavement camp. So not a pretty story, but that's how Camp Comfort yeah. got started. Well, and, and who did you know that uh, it was going to take two weeks at any point? Or did you were so motivated it just happened to take two weeks? Yeah, I mean, who knew that for doing nothing for two weeks other than over, th- or two years, overthinking it, that it right. could, that when you're really uh, motivated, you could pull it all together. It, it's like homework for mm-hmm. high school kids. It just sit down and do it, it'll go a lot faster. So that's, yeah, that's how Comfort Zone. So we spent a year planning and researching. We were the first 501c3 in the country uh, for for bereavement camps. There was a handful of hospices doing one camp a year as their community outreach effort, but it was not their full-time focus. Right. So we were the first ones uh, to start that. And I knew I wanted the camps to be free of charge. I knew I wanted um, a mix of regular camp fun, which is important, but also time for kids to get some tools to work on their grief uh, for the hard days that happen outside of camp. Things you wish you had. Exactly. Yeah. And then I knew we needed we needed campers, we needed volunteers, and we needed money because the camps were free. So I was talking to anybody who'd listen, churches. Uh, You're selling. Yes, yeah, selling, exactly. So that sales background. So weirdly enough, that whole my whole background of nonprofits, sales, and hospice with the volunteer management and grief training, I mean, my whole life, was in training yeah. for this moment. I just didn't, I mean, it gave me the perfect skill set. You're headed down the path. You just didn't know it the whole time. I had no idea. And uh, so we eventually get connected with, with Bill Lohman, who uh, is a great writer for the Times of yeah. the Flair section, one of the nicest men the, in America. Our last guest mentioned Bill Lohman. Oh, yeah. you should interview him. He's awesome. The last guy said that. <laughs> so Bill uh, did a story on, on Kelly and I starting this bereavement camp. And it was funny. They took our picture and they told us to not look too happy. I mean, it was kind of, you know, I mean, like people were like, what do you do with childhood? Gr-? I mean, you know, they, they couldn't write the kids grieve. This is a thing. There's a need for this. I mean, it, it was an unmet need in society that had right. very little awareness. People and didn't know how to talk about it. Probably. They didn't know. You're right. And then when I was growing up, there weren't any resources. And here I am, you know, many years later at this point, I think I'm 34, uh, that there weren't any resources for it. Very few. And so Bill calls us, the, the article is supposed to be on the front cover of Flair section on a Wednesday. So Wednesday comes, I go get the paper, we're not in there. So I call Bill, I'm like, what, what happened? And he's like, well, Times of Smash has gotten smart. They want to start running human interest stories on the front page of the Sunday paper. Oh, wow. And they've picked your camp. And we're like, what? And back then, the Richmond paper was a big deal. He said, readership is up 300,000 on Sunday. And he's like, now the only, you know, caveat, the only but is if something more newsworthy happens that we can't control, you, you'll be the first thing that gets bumped. So I was like, okay, I'll take my chances. Yeah. So that weekend, King Hussein of Jordan was dying. Oh. He was dying, dying, dying the whole weekend. I went to bed Saturday night. Dear God, please don't let 
King Hussein died until after the press runs. And please don't strike me down for praying this. <laughs> so get up Sunday. Kelly's walking down the driveway to get the check the paper. And I turn on the TV. King Hussein had died overnight. I was like, Damn. you know, I'm all dejected and, and waiting for Kelly to come back and tell me we didn't make the cut. And then our phone rang. And we got somebody who'd seen the article because he died after the press read. <laughs> Your prayer worked out. My prayer was answered. Your, your unconventional prayer was answered. Yes, and I didn't get struck, struck down yet. So that was really, and that article was amazing because it filled our first camp with volunteers and campers. And it helped us create the awareness throughout the Richmond area. And um, so the camp was in May. In fact, this weekend it will be... Uh, 22 years mm. it was may 21st through the 23rd 1999 and as a little sidebar that so we we started uh in january planning i'm sorry not january, in june of 98 and we spent about a year planning and i had was having trouble getting pregnant and my mom did as well and i was kind of like my whole life has kind of been challenging like this is not the toughest thing and uh, of course it's you know it just kind of like went with the whole thing kind of almost like laugh of course i'm gonna have trouble getting pregnant right and so we picked this camp date in May randomly. We rented Camp Hanover. The next week after just picking this arbitrary date, I find out I'm pregnant and due the Saturday of camp. I was due May 22nd. Oh, wow. So I was like, all right, God's really having a sense of humor with me. I'm giving birth to two things simultaneously and not even sure if I'm going to be present for one of them. So we get to camp and we had um, 34 kids and we did one-to-one -one matching of kids to adults. We had therapists volunteer and do small support groups throughout the weekend. And it was magical. I mean, we saw kids blossom and grow and heal right in front of our eyes. Yeah. It was just, it was, it was unbelievable. And um, everybody was looking, I felt great. I mean, I'm nine months pregnant. I'm, yeah, you're in, I'm, due any day. Yeah, I'm due. You know, I had to go see the, um, the OB on Friday before camp and, then I went and saw them Monday after, and I'll, I'll never forget driving out of camp on Sunday going, because I was so busy and, and with the camp that I could kind of compartmentalize. I really had to give birth, and how bad was it going to be? And I can remember leaving camp, driving out there going, oh, crap, now I really got to give birth. I got nothing to distract me now. Well, you, know, well, you went from one type of adrenaline, I imagine, to another. Yeah. Okay. So I went, uh, saw the and I went into labor Tuesday, and then... Um, uh, Evan was born about 5.30 in the morning on May 26th, so he'll be 22 very soon. Okay. And Bill Lohman came back and covered that first camp. Oh, nice. And we wound up on the front cover of Flair, and it came out that Wednesday morning, and Evan was born about 5.30 in the morning, and the paper had just arrived at the hospital, and they put Evan in one arm, and they put the newspaper <laughs> article in my other arm, and I held my two babies simultaneously, <laughs> and it was a perfect life moment. Yeah, May's a big month for you. Yeah. <laughs> a really big month. That's awesome. And so uh, did it maintain uh, momentum after the first year? So the, we did that first one, and then we, we really weren't sure, like, was it a fluke? I mean, can you replicate that kind of magic? Does that only come around once in a lifetime, or, it, or can we replicate that? And we had a second camp scheduled in August, and we did have a second camp, and that magic happened again, and we knew we were on to something. Yeah. yeah, and so you were doing it in Hanover for a few years, and then you decided to expand at some point. When did, when did that happen? So we, um, we started off doing 7 to 12-year-olds, then the next year we added teenage and 7 to 12, and then um, we, it was 2001, we got um, some national media. Our first national media was in March of 2000. We were in Parents Magazine. And we had did, a profile. Did you guys seek that or did that? Somebody count? on our board, they used to do a thing called Parent of the Month. And somebody submitted me. Huh. And I got in that. And that thing was on newsstands for an entire month. And the play on that was unbelievable. Mm. And so people started contacting us all over saying, will you come here? There's nothing like this in this state or that state. And I wasn't sure that we that we could take it, take it on the road. It's incredible demand in a short period of time. So we instead raised money and we brought kids to Richmond. And there was one guy, a volunteer in New Jersey, and he started coming down to every camp program we had. He lost his sister when he was young, and again, nothing like this up there. And so he, he was a lawyer and very, he was kind of a networker, and he was like, hey, there's nothing like this in New Jersey. If I raise the money, will you guys get on a bus and come up here and hold a camp for kids in New Jersey? And, or if I get, you know, if, if I bring kids, could I get a boatload, a busload of kids and bring them to Richmond? So we used to have board meetings the second Monday of every month. So from, from March on, 
we had that, it was the last item was what to do about New Jersey. So fast forward to the fall, Monday, September 10th was a board meeting. Mm. And the last item on the agenda was what to do about New Jersey. And we blew it off again. Oh. And then when we woke up to the horror yeah. of mm. the next day, I knew we needed to go. I mean, we'd already, <clears throat> there was nothing, we were already aware there was no resources. And we had also been in People Magazine in August of 2000. The writer of the Parents Magazine was so taken with our story that she told her husband, who worked for People Magazine, and he had to do, us do a story that came out in August of mm. 2001. So <clears throat> we'd already decided to go, but people had just read this article not a month earlier, and they were like, hey, there's nothing up here in addition to this New Jersey volunteer. So we knew we needed to go. So we went as early as November of 2001 and started providing camps, taking a bus of Richmond volunteers up I-95. And um, Yeah, if you're going to go anywhere in the country, that part of 2001, that's the, the place that had the greatest need for sure. Yeah, it was a, a horrible day. Horrible day for a lot of people. But yeah. it was the greatest honor to say that I put a smile on a child's face who experienced our nation's worst tragedy. Doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Wow. Well, so were you committed to Jersey from then on? So we're, you, and we're still up there. So yes, we did camps. We would do uh, like around four camps a year up there. And then we would do the Richmond camps. And they were just for 9-11 kids only at that point. And after about four years, those kids were kind of ready to see how their loss fit in with other kids' grief. So we opened them up to all grieving kids. And then... Um, we ended up, we had a volunteer who was begging us to go to California, and we did. We went to California in 2008, 2009, we went to Massachusetts, and 2010, we went to North Carolina. Do you still go to these places? So, and we set up offices there. So you still have offices in mm -hmm. all these places. Are you going to go to all 50, you think, or maybe the lower 48? I don't, it, so the offices have you know, gotten smaller, and we've kind of brought more things centralized, but we still have a presence and like staff person in each of those. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, we are always trying to figure out how to do more and to touch more kids. We still have some travel scholarships and we'll bring in kids in from places where we're not. And then we also in 2010 started getting partnerships where people approached us that they had a population of grieving kids, uh, like the Navy SEALs or the fallen firefighters. And they'd say, I have this population of grieving kids and would love to do a camp, but I don't have that expertise. So if I pay you to put on the camp and I give you the kids, would you run a camp? in Colorado or Florida or so we have about seven of those partnerships right now that take us around the country have you had to say no to anybody um, a few times it's not always an exact fit right um, and some of it I mean they're paying for our intellectual knowledge and um, property and so sometimes um, they're not able to especially if they're small so sometimes it's a cost thing and sometimes it's a just a, you know, not a good merger of the two organizations yeah, so uh, was it always smooth? It was not always smooth. Um, so, yeah, this could be volume two. Of, 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 you can go into much, as yeah. much detail as you feel comfortable with. Yeah, so, um, so it looked like my path was set. You know, I found my purpose in, in using my life to make a difference. And we were, um, we were 12 years into it, and we were, we'd grown it, I'd grown it to a $4 million organization. Oh, I had no idea. Mm. And... Um, you know, I was getting to the point where um, New York Life had, I Scholastic asked me to write a book um, from that People magazine they saw an asset. Somebody else from the People magazine asked me to speak to 10,000 people to the Million Dollar Roundtable. And I met the president of New York Life there, and he was from Michigan, and we struck up a relationship, well, a friendship. Right. Uh, relationship, you gotta be careful <laughs> I use that term. Uh, so I kept in touch with him. Anyways, they ended up giving us a $3 million gift. Mm. And it was awesome, but it put a lot of pressure on us to grow. It was right when the, um, the economy tanked back in 2008. And so the organization was in a lot of, of, of growth mode and kind of pressure to make sure that we um, could replace that money ourselves when it ran out. It was a million dollars a year for three years. And um, so I had an end up having um, a falling out with the board. We had a difference of vision. Um, it had a lot to do with like, I believe kids should be able to repeat. And um, sometimes you're counting heads as opposed to the depth of the experience. but. 
Anyway, I had a, a bad falling out with them. I'm not the first founder that that will happen to. I won't be the last, but we had a horrible breakup. It was very public. And, what, a, what a bummer. And Kelly worked for the camp, and um, they went on social media. They sent, a, they sent a 10-page letter out to like all of our volunteers, campers, donors, a lot of my friends and family around the country. Had they off. forgotten the mission of the, of the organization? Well, exactly. And it wasn't like that there was anything illegal or i mean so i think we had no i think that they just didn't realize i think they were afraid that if i left that the that the organization would go under so they went on the attack and you know when you do that you know it just was hard because people when you create something like this and you help people heal there's only one place to go and you go on a pedestal and when you're on a pedestal there's only one place to go you know um so people had to make choice was i not the person that they thought that i was or was the organization really not that bad and they still really wanted to send their kids to this really unique, magical place that, that was so pivotal and healing for their kids. So, you know, it was much easier to focus that on me. So it was it was really hard, it was very hard to uh, grieve a life event because it felt like the death of a third child. Right. And, um, and yet, you know, I still believe God's hand was on me. I didn't know why it happened. I used to say, you know, I, I didn't, wasn't having the Steve Jobs moment. I didn't go on to Pixar, but, you know, but, uh, but I so, still believe God's hand was on me and that I also, my kids were, they grew up going to camp and Evan was just at the beginning of middle school. So he was in sixth grade and Jamie was in third grade. And all of a sudden mom and dad don't have any jobs. And I so didn't want our, my chapter, our, of our, the last chapter of our family to be something bad happened to mom and dad or and our family didn't recover. So it was really interesting to pull up all those coping skills and, and things that I'd learned through my own grief journey, but to practice it for a life event. Right. So I had to fill myself with things and people and we all went to counseling and exercising, not because it felt good, but I knew on some level it was good for me and I usually enjoy it. And um, we got really involved in our local community, whereas before that we were never around because we were traveling all the time. So eventually um, we started to heal. Uh, Jamie starts playing sports um she was good at softball kelly starts coaching evan hops on the microphone and he was a natural and then little league gets a hold of him and then high school gets a hold of him and then um you know now he's at virginia tech and he's he's a broadcaster yeah he's a legit broadcaster. he's a legit bro- and that might not have ever so but I, we started to see that something good from something bad which is kind of my personal mantra that there's always something good from something bad, but you just have to move far enough down the road to see it. And it took a while. I mean, it definitely took a while. Um, you know, I got a job for the exact amount of money that, that or the exact amount that, of money that we needed to keep our house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like that. And, and Jamie turns out, like I said, she's pretty good at softball and had a really good run with uh, travel softball and success at, at middle school and high school. And um, that got us involved in the local community and we got to know people and put down roots. And it was kind of like we took a step over from our old life and reinvented ourselves and grew where we were planted. Um, and, and it took a while and there's still, you know, we're a lot of hurt. I didn't know why, um, but we were okay. But it, you know, it, it, and then eight years go by. It's a long time. Eight years go by and I never expected to go back. You know, different points we thought about creating a new camp. And I was never sure, do I, do I want to like do something with, that would maybe um, compete or even, um, you know, kill off my first child, you know? Right, so right, right. it was just, it was, uh, and it was almost like PTSD every time I touched something that had to do with camps uh, or bereavement. So um, eventually, I mean, you know, I did some life coaching. I did some, um, I worked uh, at a, with a couple of nonprofits and um, did a lot of stuff with resilience and burnout for healthcare workers. And then I started a camp for camp for grieving kids, not grieving kids, for um, kids dealing with social media and self-esteem called Camp Unplugged. So I was carving out like a bunch of stuff to kind of fill that creative space. And that kind of still feeling like like I had healing to do, that skill um, to lend itself to helping other people heal and navigate um, transitions. So I was doing that, and then eight, like I said, eight years go by, and um, the camp had lost a lot of money. They'd gone through five CEOs. Um, That's crazy. It's too many CEOs in eight years. So uh, their volunteers went to the media, and um, were you know kind of outing all the the disruption, and they said, "What would it take to have you come back?" And I was like, 
You know, I don't, I don't know that I want to. Um, we were okay. So right. that was a really big epiphany that, you know, I'd rebuilt this life and we were okay. Yeah. Um, so after some praying and soul searching and uh, it was not an easy decision and uh, a lot of negotiating of certain things to make sure that it was a good and safe thing for me to go back to. So um, I did. It was almost eight years to the day. Mm. So it was October of 2018 that, that I went back and Kelly also went back and... Um, so it's been two and a half years. Yes, it's been two and a half years. So the first year, it was a lot of almost like being a consultant coming in and getting that operational house in order and um, getting people to believe that Comfort Zone was stable, financially stable, um, operationally stable, and uh, programmatically stable. And all that that happened, I, I brought seven people onto the board of directors who were phenomenal and um, named a new seat, uh, chairman of the board who was awesome and everything just started clicking. Um, the board was clicking, um, the change, the culture of the staff. Um, my philosophy is to lead with heart and common sense, which is what the whole purpose was in the, in the first place. And that took us. And so eventually donors started coming back and volunteers started coming back and we uh, exceeded our financial expectations for the first year. And when I got there, I could touch the door from, it was that close to shutting. Right. And then, you know, within a few months, that door was like way across the room and, you know. And you weren't even thinking about it. Weren't even thinking about it. And we had a great 2019. And then we go into 2020 and we had a great first quarter. It exceeded expectations. We kept surpassing all of our um, revenue goals. And then the pandemic hit. But thank God it didn't happen in 2019 because I don't know that the organization yeah. would have survived. And um, then, um, you know, I, I knew that there was more grief than ever, that it was not okay to hold our breath and wait for the pandemic to end. So we started doing virtual camps and we figured out how to do icebreakers on Zoom and how to do support groups on Zoom. And how to Zoom, do, Zoom was awesome. How to do a bonfire. How to, and we, then we got kids from around the country we would not have normally gotten participated. It, it's changed how you interact with the outside world, I imagine. So, yeah, and so that was, again, something good from something bad. And then we started reading the tea leaves that there's Zoom fatigue. And so we were like, we got to get back to in-person camps. Because in-person camps are a lot more fun than Zoom camps. And a uh, little deeper. I mean, that we, we, you know, we, the virtual camps are, are good, but there's just, you know, you can't replace in-person interaction. So we, we could only find camps that we could rent to families. Well, I'd always believed that the kids did better without the families there. But that was our only option, so we created a family camp. Mm. And we had the, the parents and kids sleep together. We'd separate them during the day, and then they'd come together and sleep at night. And then we didn't have to worry about COVID and, and different things. We still had nurses, and we followed COVID protocols, but it was just a lot safer way to get back to camp. And it turns out when we helped the parents in their own program heal and deal with their grief, that we ended up strengthening the entire family unit. And we found this like major blessing and this major... Um, gift that you probably wouldn't have figured out never i mean i i walked away from family camps year over year like oh i just don't think it would work oh i just and here it was working we yeah. were and so we will forever now do some form of virtual camps and we will forever do some type of family camps we've done probably eight family camps now how many camps do you do a year we usually do between 20 and 25 and they last how long about a, a weekend they oh, are okay. friday through saturday we rent other people's camps and they're off season we're like a traveling road show and 20 to 25 is the, the capacity, typically? Uh, right now. Yeah. I mean, we again, we could grow. We're trying to figure out how to, we kind of had to do that level set and figure out how to uh, to, to regrow it. So 48 weekends a year, you think? Could you're gonna be, get to? could be. F 52 seems like too much. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we, we need different teams of people. Um, but there's a lot of grief out there. And so whether we create a consulting division, you know, there's just different ways maybe of helping helping people in addition to camps. and um, But there's a lot of kids in the country. There's a couple million kids um, in the United States under the age of 18. And then we also do some camps for up to 25-year-olds as well, young adults. And they all uh, need help. Uh, most of them want the help, I imagine. Uh, they just don't know where to turn. 
in a lot of cases. Well, sometimes they want it. Sometimes the parents or guardians want it. I mean, we have to do a little selling that this will be good for them. And a lot of the kids are like, how depressing is this going to be? Am I going to death camp? Yeah. And we're like, have to like tell them, hey, you know, if you bring the child, we have about a 95% repeat rate and you will pick up a that's different incre- child. That's incredible. It is incredible. So we just really, you know, we work with the parents a lot to handhold and encourage and say, I, we, you know, this, this will change your child's life. And it obviously does because people don't come back to something that's not working. Yeah, that's really cool. So what do you do outside of uh, comfort zone camp? So, well, I was very into being a, you know, the mom. I, sure. I pretty much had time for, for my two kids and for comfort zone camp. Uh, and now, however, we are empty nesters. So Yeah, so do you officially hit empty nester status when your youngest is uh, out of high school? That's what I think. I'll go with that. Um, there's some who, I guess, feel like after they graduate from college, but um, they're gone more than they're there. So, uh, so yeah, Kelly and I, um, we like to exercise. Um, we um, bought a small uh, condo at Wintergreen. So mm. we've like been figuring out Airbnb and kind of like that's been like a big project uh, that's been very all-consuming and kind of good for us. Um, hanging out with friends. We would go to we go to Blacksburg a lot. Both of our kids were at Tech this past year. So we In a would, weird year. In a weird year, for sure. Yeah, it was a very challenging year uh, for my daughter to be a senior last year and then to go into uh, college life was not good in the fall. It got much better the second half and she's a much happier kid as a result, but it was, you know, it was tough. Yeah. I don't know that they could have done two semesters like the fall semester. My son is uh, just finished his freshman year at Virginia tech as well. And he stayed in slusher and, and I, I've been to the dorm a few times. I'm like, how did you, cause all of his time. And I imagine your daughter's time was, was in the dorm other than eating and a couple of other things that they could do on campus in normal times, they could go do hundreds of different things on campus. And I said, buddy, you have no idea what the normal college experience is like. He's like, Dad, I have no clue. Virtual classes? I didn't even go to any classes. Yeah, thank, and thank goodness my daughter roomed with her good friend. And for a lot of those kids who didn't room with somebody they knew and they didn't get along or click or had that much in common, and here they were like forced and sequestered. Right, Well, and they're trying to learn. And yeah. the uh, their roommate is not trying to learn at that moment, and it can be quite distracting. And I, I don't know how the, the kids got through it. I don't know what was weirder, their freshman year of college or the, uh, the end of their senior year of high school. Yeah, we, I ended up doing a lot of stuff with life grief, both for, for kids for the past year and still in school as well as college, but trying to help them create coping skills and get out from the four walls and do, do what they could to keep their mental health intact because um, it was tough. At a, at a high level, what do you tell folks of any age? Yeah, I mean, that you've got to find something that gives you some purpose and value and that you've got it. The four walls will close in on you. So whether you're either going for a walk, I mean, you've got to do something to get out. Like go for a drive, read a book, um, you know, Zoom with friends. I mean, you've got to, like, create some things that bring you joy, work out. Um, working out is, you know, such a good stress reliever. But you've got to find, got to find things. You can't you just, can't stay, just stay in that room. Yeah, and watch watch a laptop monitor or stare at TV all day long. Yeah, very cool. So uh, what is the future bright, you think? You're pretty excited, pretty optimistic about? Comfort yeah. Zone Camp in particular? Yes. Um, yeah, you know, there's it, we're still growing. Um, we were, were, were with, we did over 12 virtual camps last year and four in-person camps and our donors, we scaled our, our budget revenues way back when COVID started, we couldn't do fundraisers. I mean, there's a lot of things that didn't happen, but in, in, there's different buckets of giving, and one of them is individual giving, which is often kind of like the barometer of how healthy your organization is. Uh, and our individual giving, we scaled back, we had to bump it up, and we bumped it up again, and then we still exceeded our expectations. So people were really, um, really supportive of us financially and uh, with their time because we, we didn't fold and because we were out there swinging and trying to do what we could and we called it the year of the pivot. Yeah. And uh, so, it, and we're still being rewarded with it this year. And um, so, yeah, we're back doing in-person camps and um, it, it looks a little different. We've modified it. We called it a modified traditional camp, but we've got a camp in New Jersey. We just did one last week in Virginia. We were in Florida three weeks ago. We'll be in Nevada in mm. a couple of weeks and in Massachusetts. So, 
Um, so we're back. Um, and so, yeah, the future is bright. It's always tricky to kind of, you know, figure out it's a cloudy crystal ball to figure from the, you know, what, what can we do to serve more kids and how do we grow? And, um, but it's exciting stuff. And I think, you know, what's different for me even coming back is realizing that, you know, I'm not going to be doing this forever. So, you know, mentoring, pouring into my staff and mentoring them and, um, really trying to help make sure that comfort zone exists beyond my lifetime. And, that whether one day when I want to retire or do something different, that, that the organization's strong and the philosophy there is there and that mantra of heart and common sense is yeah. instilled uh, in everything that we do. Yeah, it's hard to maintain that, C- clearly given the experience, but it, it sounds like uh, you've got it the second time around. I don't think it's going to happen again. Thank you. Yes. I, <laughs> I can't imagine it's going to happen again. So uh, the mix of volunteers versus uh, paid employees, what, what, what does that mix look like? We have 11 paid employees right now, so we do a lot with a very lean staff. Um, so if, if we're at a camp, we could have anywhere from 40 to 70 volunteers at a weekend. Mm. So it's, we're very volunteer-reliant and do a lot of volunteer recruiting and training. And, but people, a lot of our volunteers are just amazing because they'll say that you know, if they, if they um, come next to their uh, getting married or the birth of their children, this is the most life-changing thing that they've done. And if they don't have those two life events, this is the most life-changing thing that they've done. So they, um, it speaks to them and they're, they're great uh, ambassadors for Comfort Zone wearing the t-shirts or telling their employers or referring kids or returning, referring other people to volunteer. So it's 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 pretty amazing. It's special. They'll, they're selflessly helping people that clearly have a need, and that's uh, got to be really powerful for them. Do they? Do the volunteers ever know any of the uh, camp, the kids at the camp, at the campers? Um, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes they'll be in the small support groups called healing circles, and sometimes there's a story you heard about on the news, and the child is telling the story, and you're like, you know, trying not to have your mouth open and go. Oh, I remember that story. And then, you know, your next thing is, oh, I'm so glad that they're here. I'm right. so glad that somebody let them know. Um, one of the, probably the most things that I'm really proud of and one of the ripples that I just never would have dreamed was <clears throat> that the kids would want to turn in, the campers would want to become volunteers. And then not only did they, um, so when they're 15, they be, can become junior counselors. When they're 18, then they, they can become big buddies. And <clears throat> now we've been doing this for so long that about a third of our, our volunteers at a camp, our former campers turned volunteers. Who are now adults. Which is awesome, yes. They're, and, and then I have uh, three former campers on staff. And they're, and they're thriving. They're I, thriving. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And they're our best, I mean, for them, for the, the two two girls that are on staff are really, um, they, they do a lot of facilitation. They're kind of the face of a lot of camps. And so recently, at the parents' camp, then the new family camp, we have them come and tell their story to the the parents, and 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 the parents get they're hanging on every word, and they get to say, "Well, will my child be okay, or am I pushing, and do they, I need to make?" They them? end up like this. Yes, and and then we say, you know, and they'll say, both of them have said, like, "Listen, you know, like I'm a happy person despite what's happened to me, and even you know, I'm not glad my dad died, but if I had to choose it again, like, I wouldn't be who I am if that didn't happen." And I like who I am. And so, you know, I, I'm okay with the fact it happened to me. And I miss my dad, but it's... But it's okay. Yeah, yeah, I've made peace with it and I'm still happy. So one of the moms recently said, are, are you, do our kids know this? Are they hearing this? And we're like, you know, they are only seeing them as a smiley, fun, you know, face of camps, doing different games with them. So at the closing service, we do a closing memorial service where the kids can do whatever they want and tribute to their loved one. And sometimes it's it's like kicking a soccer ball or telling their dad's favorite joke. And other times somebody's reading a poem or singing a cappella and we're having a good group cry. But we've incorporated the two of them like, hey, you've seen us all weekend and you may not know this, but we want to tell you about our story and to let you know like you will be okay. We were you. We were, and one of them started coming when she was seven. She lost her dad 9-11. It's powerful. So, you know, it's just, anyways, it's bigger than me. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I have a friend who was hoping to be here tonight to, to talk with you as well. He lost a sibling when he was uh, in his early 20s, and he participated in something. I wish he was here to describe what it was. But you also, it's not just kids who have lost a parent. It, parent, sibling, or a primary caregiver. And then this year, we've added on friend loss because friend loss is so prevalent. There's so much primarily suicide um, right. loss. But so we've had... Uh, 
expand that to help those kids as well. Yeah. And, and it's usually kids, but sometimes it's uh, young adults or even older adults. Right. So we start, I start at age seven and then go to um, age 25. And then, like I said, now we're doing some of the adults, the parents. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't be everything to everybody because uh, if you try to be, you, you're not doing uh, the bare minimums for uh, the folks that you were originally focused on, which were the kids who lost parents. It's a lot to think about. It's a, I feel uh, like I have not accomplished nearly enough in my, uh, my 52 years of living. I need to give back uh, in b- bigger and better ways, I think. And so I appreciate you inspiring me in that way. And I'm sure you have inspired our, our listeners. Well, thank you. And you are, you're, you know, you're doing something creative and from the heart and touching people's souls. And uh, to me, it's one of the greatest gifts when somebody gives you a glimpse and lets you, you know, see into their soul. And that's what you're doing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy learning uh, everybody's unique stories. And your story is not just unique. It's uh, super powerful. And uh, you're giving back to your fellow uh person fellow human and it's uh it's a great story glad you came to tell it i was glad to be here uh to hear it thank you so much lynn i appreciate it well thank you for having me it's been a pleasure thank you for listening if you enjoy this episode please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts we'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us you can find us at scodopodcast.com